I'd ask you if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. We're continuing our study of Acts, and this morning we'll be in Acts 18, uh, 1 to 17. Acts 18, 1 to 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for there were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him, or when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people who are, many of the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul in Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge on these things. They drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of our Lord. May he write eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious God, we praise you for your word for your word in the power of the Holy Spirit made us alive in Christ Jesus. We praise you, Lord, that your work always accomplishes that for which it is sent in the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul and his faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would help our confidence to be the same as the Apostle Paul's confidence and that you would help us to be bold and fearless in the proclamation of Christ to a dead and dying world. We pray this again for your glory and for the building of your church. Amen. Please be seated. Last week I began by talking about the fact that we live in a post-Christian culture. And again, even though you could make the case that this has really never been a Christian culture, you would agree that biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. That biblical literacy is at an all-time low. A friend sent me a text this week with a clip from the TV game show Jeopardy. And in case you're not familiar with Jeopardy, basically what, what happens is the host will, will, will make a statement. He'll read the answer, and then the contestants need to give their answer in the form of a question. Now, I don't have any idea what the name of the woman is who hosts Jeopardy since Alec Trebek passed away, but, but anyway, she, she read the answer. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father, which art in heaven, this be thy name. And so she made the statement and waited for the contestants to, to give the question. But there was nothing but silence. Nothing but silence. The, the contestants, and Jeopardy contest, contestants, to my knowledge, tend to be more intelligent and more well-read than average citizens. They had no idea. They had no familiarity at all with the Lord's Prayer. 
And I think if, if I think it, it follows that if if these people who are not even familiar with the Lord's Prayer, then what does that say about the general population? But as we saw during the kids' time, even young children in our church know the answer to that question. They know that it's used in the form of jeopardy. What is hallowed be thy name? And so the reality is that, that people in our culture really have no idea about the Bible, increasingly so. Even many people who go to church on most Sundays really have little to no idea of what the Bible is all about because many people in many churches are being fed something that is contrary to the Word of God. They might even quote Scripture, but the explanation that is given does not line up with the meaning of the Word of God. And so people are left ignorant, they're left confused. But as is often the case, we are seeing not just a rise in ignorance of God's Word, but a rise in hostility towards God's Word. Again, the contestants on Jeopardy, I, I think it's safe to say, these contestants just didn't have any idea about the concept of hallowing God's name, but they didn't want to hallow God's name. The, the idea of, of honoring God as he is for who he is would have been offensive to them, at least the God of the Bible. Yet many unbelievers who don't even know what the Bible teaches, are opposed to what the Bible teaches. And in many cases, even those who do know what the Bible teaches are even more hostile towards it. And they're increasingly hostile to what the Bible teaches and to those who believe it. But again, it's, 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 I think in many cases, it's worse, even many cases, for professing believers who have been raised on teaching that you can't even really say is milk. It's spoiled milk or it's soy milk, or it's spoiled soy milk. But they think they're being nourished, but at the same time, they're being sold counterfeit Christianity. And this makes the task of evangelism daunting, as we're seeking to disentangle people's wrong conceptions of the Word of God and, and a, a wrong conception of us. And it's all generally in a, in a context of antagonism. And so when you present the true gospel to someone like this, they look at you like you have two heads or that you have horns and a forked tail. They call you a false teacher and they reject you for what you're saying. And it's really not too different from what the Apostle Paul experienced on his missionary journeys. Those we've seen, the, the opponents to the gospel there are far more hostile, or at least outwardly hostile. They're, they're quite often that their hostility takes the form of outward and active aggression. But I think we can recognize that our culture as well is headed in the same direction. In city after city, Paul went first to the synagogue, to people who knew God's word or, or thought that they knew God's word and sought to reason with them in order to show them that Jesus Christ is indeed the promised Messiah. And we, see, we saw again and again that while some believed the gospel and repented and trusted in Christ, others rejected the gospel and attacked Paul in word or deed or both. In the passage before us, we have three key scenes. In verses 1 to 5, we see the proclamation of the gospel. In verses 6 to 11, we see confidence in the gospel. And in verses 12 to 17, we see further opposition to the gospel. And we're going to see how yet again, Paul faithfully bears witness of Jesus Christ. And yet again, some receive Christ and others reject Christ and oppose Paul. And this is key for this passage. In the polarized response, we see the basis for Paul's confidence and ours. I'll say that again. In the polarized response, we see the basis for Paul's confidence and for ours. So first of all, verses 1 to 5, the, the proclamation of the gospel. It is now about the year A.D. 50. 
Paul is nearing the end of his second missionary journey. He has left Athens and traveled to Corinth, which is about 85 kilometers by land or about 65 kilometers if he traveled by sea. And Corinth was situated in a, in a prime position. It's located on the narrow isthmus between mainland Greece and the Peloponnese Peninsula. This meant that, that Corinth was on an important trade route by land and by sea. It was at the crossroads between eastern and western, the eastern and western Mediterranean. It had ports on both sides of the isthmus. Again, as such, it was the center of commerce between northern and southern Greece and also between Italy and Asia. And this also made Corinth an extremely strategic position from a missions perspective. Corinth in Paul's day was far bigger than Athens, which had a population of, at that time of about 10,000 people. Corinth at that time was home to over 200,000 people, making it one of the largest cities in Greece, if not the entire Roman Empire. It was also one of the most prosperous, again, because of its location. Now, Corinth had been destroyed by the Romans, by Roman troops in, in 146 BC, but it was rebuilt by the Romans in 44 BC. And so the architecture of, of Corinth at the time of Paul was, was not as old as it was in other cities like Athens. It was much more modern, with few buildings much more than 100 years old. But Corinth is actually one of the best preserved cities from the ancient world. Many of the buildings that we're going to be reading about today in this passage are still intact. The synagogue is still there, as is the house of justice that was next door to the synagogue, as is Gallio's judgment seat. They're all still there. You can visit those locations in Corinth. Corinth sponsored the Isthmian Games, and it was not unlike the Olympics every two years. Corinth was, was cosmopolitan, attracting people from east and west, including Romans, Greek, Jews, and many others. And the people that came to Corinth brought with them their diverse culture and their diverse religion. The, the Roman emperor cults were, were prevalent. There was also a, a well-established Jewish community and the synagogues that held to Judaism. Others had imported, imported mystery cults from, from Egypt and from Asia. But in Corinth, the pagan Greek worship was the norm. There were at least 26 sacred sites, including the Temple of Aphrodite, which was said to employ over a thousand temple prostitutes, slaves, who were there for ritual prostitution. And so being a wealthy port city that brought many sailors to the city, it made prostitution a lucrative enterprise. Corinth was so debauched that the term Corinthianize was used to describe fornication. Leon Morris describes Corinth as intellectually alert, materially prosperous, prosperous, but morally corrupt. John Perry writes, The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The city was typified by the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. The same could be said of our own city and virtually any Western city. The reckless development of the individual. There is no superior, no law, but what people want, the, the corrupt imaginations of their hearts. Our culture is so focused on self gratification and a personal desires with virtually no limits that it's impossible to keep up with just, just how reckless and immoral our culture is becoming. The only solution to this reckless individualism is dying to self through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul arrived in Corinth, he met Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had emigrated to Corinth when Caesar Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. This is a, a well-attested event. It took place around A.D. 49. The Roman historian Suetonius wrote that Claudius expelled them because, now hear this, that Claudius expelled them because the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. What, what does this mean? The instigation of Crestus. Many historians see this as a clear references, as a clear reference to Jesus Christ. 
That Suetonius is describing the riots in Rome among the Jews as to whether Jesus was the Christ. And it's apparent that Aquila and Priscilla then were already Christians when they met Paul. So this and the fact that the riots are, are presented as evidence that Christianity had already arrived in Rome prior to, to the Apostle Paul and, and prior to we know of, of any apostolic witness in the city. But clearly, as, as the gospel had spread from Jerusalem to Samaria, and to, sorry, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the outermost parts of the earth, the, the gospel had begun to spread even to the heart of the Roman Empire. When we read about Aquila and Priscilla in the New Testament, they, they're always mentioned together. It's actually quite often Priscilla is mentioned first. It's thought that, that maybe she was from a, a higher social status than Aquila. But Priscilla and Aquila will figure prominently later in Acts 18 where they're going to fine-tune the theology of Apollos. And Priscilla and Aquila are known for their hospitality. Not only will Paul stay with them here, but, but, but when Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus, the church is going to meet with their, in their home. And likewise, when they return to Rome, the church is going to meet at their home. I was encouraged and exhorted by Dennis Johnson's comment that in our day, Isolated as we are by individual individualism and stressed by overcommitment, believers need to re rediscover the joys of this ministry exemplified in the practice of Priscilla and Aquila of opening our homes to others. You know, we are so bogged down in our goals and, and our individual desires and we're overcommitted in, in so many different ways that, that, we, that we forget the nature of true hospitality. And I was talking to Jane earlier this week about the, the concept of, of margin and saying, you know, I need to have margin. And she said, well, margin is not a, a biblical concept. That we, we are to have our lives poured out in ministry to others. And verse 3 is the first time that we hear of Paul's trade, that, that Paul was a tent maker along with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, a tent maker could also refer to, to a leather worker. And there would have been a, a good market for tent making or, or leather working in Corinth, especially with the visitors to the Isthmian Games, who would have needed a, a accommodation and whatnot um, when they came for, the, for these games. And Paul would have, I'm sure, seen this as further opportunities for evangelism as people had come from all over the empire to compete. And Paul seems to have practiced his, his trade as a tent maker also when he was in Thessalonica and, and also when he was in Ephesus. As he's going to describe in, in 1 Corinthians 9, although he had the right to earn an income from his ministry, he gave up that right so as not to put a, an obstacle in the way of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.12. And this was especially important in Corinthian culture where sophists, or sophists were, who were traveling philosophers, they would travel from, from city to city and, and from place to place giving speeches, giving orations for a fee. And so Paul did want, not want to give the impression of being a peddler of God's word, as he says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, of, of taking someone's money and then of moving on. In verse 4, we see Paul back in the synagogue. So evidently Paul was working through the week as a tent maker, and then on Saturday he would have gone to the synagogue. As usual, his first efforts for evangelism were made in the synagogue. Sabbath after Sabbath, he tried to persuade the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks who had assembled that Jesus was the Christ. He, he knew he couldn't reason them into faith, but he opened up the scriptures, as he always did, to show them who Jesus Christ is. Again, as we talked about last week, ours is a reasonable faith. Powerfully reasonable. When you reason from the scriptures. When you look at the biblical testimony. But then Paul and, and or sorry, then Silas and Timothy arrived. Timothy from Thessalonica and Silas likely from Philippi. And it seems from 2 Corinthians 11.9 and Philippians 4.14 and 15 that they brought funds from Macedonia to enable Paul to stop working his trade and to devote himself completely to the preaching of the word, of testifying to Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah that they anticipated from the Old Testament. 
So Paul here is, is faithful preaching the gospel. And we'll see in verses 6 to 11 that he has confidence in the gospel. As we've seen so often, many of the Jews opposed Paul and rejected the gospel. The ESV says here that they opposed and reviled him, but I think the, the NASB is actually closer to the original where it says they resisted and blasphemed. They weren't, they weren't really here reviling Paul, but they were reviling God. They were blaspheming God. So they resisted Paul and they blasphemed God. And both go hand in hand. As we'll see later in this passage, those who hate God will hate his messengers as well. When you share the gospel or really any biblical truth with someone, they're brought to a point of choice. They, they can either accept and embrace the truth or reject it. And if they reject the truth, quite often they will reject you as well. So what does Paul do in response? He shook out his clothes, symbolically cleansing himself, even of the dust of the synagogue. Much as he had shaken the dust from his sandals when he left Pisidian Antioch, when the Jews had rejected the gospel in chapter 1351. Jesus had instructed the disciples to, to do this, at least figuratively, in Luke 9.5 and, and 10.11. Now, I'm not sure that we're supposed to literally shake the dust from our garments or the, 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 the dust from our, our sandals or whatever shoes you're wearing. But there, I, I think there would be times that it might even be appropriate as a, as, a, as, a, as a figurative judgment or representation of the physical judgment against the people you're ministering to. I remember Steve Lawson telling us in class that he that he, he was fired in, in a church in the, in the South for preaching the doctrines of grace. And as he left, he actually took off his shoes and, and shook out the dust. Again, as, as, a, as a judgment against these people for, for rejecting God's word. Paul told them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He is deliberately quoting here an Old Testament passage that he is saying to these Jews that he has fulfilled his role as the watchman of Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33, 5 says that he who heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself. Paul is saying to these Jews that they're responsible for their own judgment, that they are self-condemned for the rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul says here that from now on he's going to the Gentiles, it doesn't mean that he's going to stop proclaiming the gospel to Jews altogether. He will continue to do this, but he's saying that here in Corinth, he's going to move on from the ministry to the Jews to speak to and preach to the Gentiles. So Paul left the synagogue. But he didn't go very far. He only made it as far as next door. He went next door to the, the synagogue, to the house of of Titius Justus, who we're told had been a devout, God-fearing Gentile in the synagogue, but, but he had evidently come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're also told by Luke that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue and his family, had also been converted and believed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.14 that Crispus was one of the only people that Paul had baptized. Many Corinthians, Luke tells us, believed and were baptized. And notice again here that it is those who believed who were baptized. The scriptures do not teach infant baptism, either directly or indirectly. So at this point, it really looks like the ministry in Corinth is a resounding success. And it was. But evidently, Paul was, was feeling some fear. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I think of, of the Apostle Paul, I, I think of, of him as, as standing bold-faced and fearless in the face of, of all opposition. And Paul was certainly brave, but, but he wasn't Superman. He was a human being just like you and me, and he was subject to the same human weaknesses as you and me. This might really be what he's referencing in 1 Corinthians 2.3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
Now, this is not false humility. When Paul tells the Corinthians that he was in weakness and fear and much trembling, he really was in weakness and fear and much trembling. And so it might be this very incident that that is being pointed to here by Luke. We don't know specifically what was going on in Paul's heart, but the Lord clearly, from the, the immediate and the broader context, the Lord Jesus Christ sought to encourage and to embolden the Apostle Paul. In fact, the Lord is going to comfort Paul again in two more times in Acts 23.11 and in Acts 27.33 and 34. The, the Lord himself is going to promise that he's going to testify of him in Rome and before Caesar. So the first command here to Paul is to do not be afraid. We see this really throughout the Old Testament, don't we? That prophets are, are comforted by God being told not to fear. Men like Moses and Joshua and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to name a few, all are commanded by God to not be afraid. What's the basis of this command? There are really two commands in this vision from the Lord, two commands and three promises. We don't have all of the same promises, but we do have the same commands. The first promise that God is with us is, is there is a promise to us. We do have the promise that God is with us, but there's no promise that no one will attack us or harm us. Likewise, we don't have the promise that there are many of God's people in this city, but we do have the two commands. Do not be afraid and go on speaking. Don't be silent. Those commands apply to us every bit as much as they apply to the Apostle Paul. What makes you afraid of sharing the gospel? Are you afraid that, that somebody's going to, to harm you for preaching Christ? Are you afraid that somebody's going to harm your children for preaching Christ? Now, at this point in our culture, this is, this is not a direct threat to us, but our, our brothers and our sisters around the world in many countries face this on a daily basis. We pray for them every Sunday. Thankfully, we're not likely to, to face these kinds of trials, at least not yet. More likely that, that, that what, what makes us afraid is, is the fear of, of disapproval of friends or a fear of, of disfavor at work. And these are the sorts of things that silence us from preaching the gospel. It can even be fear of a stranger at the park or at the bank or at the barber or on a plane. But again, we have the same commands to not be afraid and to go on speaking and to not be silent. Jay Packer writes in his, in his excellent book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, that the preacher should work to convert unbelievers in his congregation, that the wife should work to save her unbelieving husband. Christians are sent to convert and they should not allow themselves as Christ's representatives in the world to aim at anything less. Evangelism, he says, therefore, is not simply a matter of teaching and instructing and imparting information to the mind. There's more to it than that. Evangelism includes an endeavor to elicit a response to the truth taught. And so the Lord tells Paul not to be afraid and to go on speaking, to not be silent because of three promises. I'll, I'll deal with the first promise again because it's a promise that we all have. And the second promise is a promise that we have only indirectly. And then thirdly, I'll deal with the promise that was only for Paul specifically. First, Paul is to go on speaking and to not be silent because God is with him. God is with him to empower him, to strengthen him. And again, that promise is true for us, that in Christ, God is with us. And so when we, we seek, as Packer said, we, we seek to work to convert we do so confident that God is with us. Confident that God is not just with us, but that God is in us, in the Holy Spirit. And so we're confident that, that, that God is going to work in us and God is going to work through us for the glory of his name and for the advance of his kingdom. We recognize that we can't do any of this without God's empowerment. 
Again, Paul was reliant on the Holy Spirit. We are reliant on the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Holy Spirit who empowered Paul. Now, we're not called to, to do exactly the same works as Paul. But we're called to do the same work as Paul. That of proclaiming the gospel. That of, of speaking and not being silent. And many of us can testify to, to God being with us, can't we, in, in these, these conversations. Have you ever had one of those conversations where you walk away and you realize, wow, I could not have done that unless God strengthened me to do that. I have those conversations regularly. In fact, I'm, I'm confident of that fact right now. That I couldn't say any of this unless God was with me, working in me and through me. As you put yourself out there in evangelism, you'll have the amazing privilege of seeing God work in you and through you for the glory of his name and the salvation of the lost. The Lord also commands Paul to go on speaking and not being silent because he says that he has many people in Corinth. He says, I have many people in this city who are, not, who are my people. In other words, he's saying that there, there are many people in the city who are elect but do not yet know me, have not yet trusted in Christ. Now, this promise we have only indirectly. We, we don't have the same promise that in this city there are many elect who do not yet know Christ. However, we can have confidence in this from what Paul heard from the Lord Jesus. We act on faith and in, in the hope that this is true. And so we speak the gospel to others in, in hope that they're, that the, the person that we're speaking to might actually be someone who's elect and confident that the Holy Spirit will work in the hearts of his people, that, that he will give power to our words to accomplish what we could never do. Spurgeon said that if, that if people had, if the elect had a yellow stripe painted down their backs, then he would go around lifting shirts. But he says, since, I, since he did not do this, I must preach whoever will. And then whatsoever, and when whatsoever believes, I know that he is one of the elect. So he's confident that, that God is going to work in and through the word of God preached in the hearts of the elect. We don't need to worry about who the elect are. We, we simply preach and trust God. And when we do this, when we, when we seek to, to preach the gospel to others, we are, we're motivated ultimately by the love of God. We, we want God to see the glory that is due his name. We want to see this person who is an unbeliever, who is living in rebellion against God. We, we want to see this person repent by God's grace and become a worshiper of God. Again, so that God will get the glory that is due his name. That is the, the ultimate reason for evangelism. It's really the, the fulfillment of the great commandment. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're also motivated by love of neighbor. We, we see people that are without Christ and we're, we are, are desperately concerned for their eternal salvation. And so out of love for them, we preach the gospel to them. So that's the second promise. The, the, finally, there's the promise, the third promise that is specifically for Paul. No one will attack you to harm you. Again, that, that promise is not in general. That, that promise is only for Paul. We can't claim this promise as our own. We must be very careful to not take this promise or any promise out of context and apply it to ourselves. This promise was for Paul. Furthermore, this promise was only for Paul on this occasion. The Lord is only saying to him that in this city, no one will, will attack you to harm you. And Paul will be attacked in the city, but he won't be harmed in this city. But he will be attacked and harmed soon enough. He's going to be beaten by the Jews when he returns to Jerusalem in Acts 21. He's going to be martyred by Caesar Nero. 
But this word of the Lord to the Apostle Paul was a comfort to him. It emboldened him. And it's here for, for our comfort, for, for our emboldenment as well. So we need to see that, that what God did in and through Paul, again, not to the same magnitude or the same degree, but he will do in and through us for the glory of his name. And so Paul was emboldened and he was encouraged. And in verse 11, we read that he stayed there for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul knew that God was faithful to keep his promises. So in the strength of God, Paul was faithful to obey God's commands. Again, we're not the Apostle Paul. We do not have the same calling upon our lives. But, but what will faithfulness look like in your context? Well, what, will God, what will confidence in God look like in your context as you draw confidence from God's promises that are made to you in his word? Finally, in verses 12 to 17, we see opposition to the gospel. We're told here that, that at this point in verse 12 that, that Gallio was the, the proconsul of Achaia. And, and this is, he is, Gallio is well attested to in, in history, not, not just here in, in Acts, which is the ultimate authority, but, but in many, many other um, historical documents. And we know, we know that he was, was proconsul for a relatively short period of time, around this, this time of A.D., 50 and, and 51, so, so he had to leave because of a fever, but, but this, this gives us a, a clear snapshot. There's a time stamp here that tells us that Paul was in, in Corinth here. This point was, was around um, A.D. 50. We know a fair bit about Gallio. He was the, the son of Marcus Aeneas Seneca, the noble Spanish rhetorician, and more importantly, he was the younger brother of the famous Stoic philosopher and politician Lucius Aeneas Seneca, who would be martyred by Nero. And in fact, Gallio himself would be martyred by Nero later on. The documents have been discovered that demonstrate that, that Gallio, again, was no longer Corinth by, by, by A.D. Um, by May or June of AD 52. So again, we have a, a, a fixed date of, of what, uh, of, of the time of Paul in Corinth. But notice here that the, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. Remember that, that God had just promised Paul that no one would make an attack on you to harm you, but, but the promise is not that no one will attack you, but, not, but only that they will not harm you. So they, they made this united attack on him and, and dragged Paul before Gallio. And I said earlier that he was brought to the, the, the judgment seat or the Bema seat. We probably know that, that reference from, from, the, from, uh, uh, from Revelation. He was, judged, he was brought before the, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of, of Gallio, which was at, at about seven and a half feet, feet high. And, and so Paul would have been, have been dragged before the proconsul. And they say to Gallio, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, there's some discussion as to, to whether this was Roman law or Jewish law. But I think ultimately, he's, they're speaking here of, of what Paul was doing was, was really against Jewish law. But as such, it was also at this point against Roman law because the, the Jews had been given the rights to worship in, in Rome prior to this. And what they were arguing is that, that Paul was bringing in a new religion. And new religions were seen as being divisive under the Pax Romana that, that was brought in by Caesar Augustus. And so they, it would have been, if they had succeeded in making the case, they could have had, had Paul be executed as a, as a purveyor of a new religion. But again, I think immediately here we can see in the context that, that ultimately this is actually because what, he's, what Paul is teaching is against Jewish law. And I can guarantee that, that as Paul was, was standing there, wherever he was, it was possibly even shackled uh, before Gallio, that those, that promise of God, that God would be with him, was, was there in his heart and his mind.
So he opened his mouth to speak, to make an offense to the gospel, as he's done repeatedly. But he doesn't even get it. He's prepared to actually now give an answer and to proclaim the gospel before Gallio. And show that it actually lines up with, with the scriptures. But he doesn't even get the chance. He doesn't actually need to defend himself. Because God is, is here at work. And so Gallio said to the Jews, if it was a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, so you see ultimately that's what it's about, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. So, so the issue here is, is as Gallio sees it, is a, is a philosophical religious debate that he doesn't even want to enter into. He's probably, I'm sure, he's aware of, of what had happened with the expulsion of the Jews from Rome not long before, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. And he's recognizing here implicitly that the Jews did have, the community did have a right to settle internal matters themselves. But the point here is that Gallio does not see Christianity as a threat to Rome. And really, it's precedent-setting. Because if he had a rule against, against Paul here, it, it, would have led to, it would have led to Christianity being outlawed, outlawed in the Roman Empire, as it will be soon enough. But not yet. And so Gallio drove these, these accusers and Paul from the tribunal. And so he's, we can see here that, um, that the Gallio was not very friendly towards the Jews. And in fact, he is, he is very likely anti-Semitic. So it says they all beat Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So evidently, Sosthenes was the one who had replaced Crispus as the ruler of the synagogue. And, and so some would suggest that, that it's Sosthenes, who is mentioned in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, that this is the same person, that Sosthenes was actually a Christian. I think, I can't say for sure, but I think that's unlikely, based on the fact that he's chosen as, the, as replacing Crispus, who's become a Christian. It's very unlikely that they would have put somebody in his rule of the synagogue after Crispus, who is also uh, sympathetic to the gospel. But whether the crowd here is motivated by anti-Semitism or, or whether this is the Jews themselves who are frustrated at, at what has taken place and they beat Sosthenes, we, we simply can't tell. Again, Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And so here we see that the, the immediate fulfillment of God's promise to Paul that Paul was, was with him and that no one could attack him to harm him. As God worked through this, this pagan tribune to protect Paul. But again, that's not a promise that, that, that we have. We, we, can't, we are not guaranteed protection from, from bodily harm. If the Lord tarries, we may face that. And may God help us to stand firm in the face of that. As our culture becomes increasingly not just post-Christian, but anti-Christian. But we can have the same confidence as the Apostle Paul because of God's promises to us, especially God's promises to us in the gospel, that God is with us in Christ and God is in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So in this polarized response of this, this opposition of, of some people rejecting the gospel and some people rejecting Paul and some people embracing the gospel and, and some people siding with Paul, we see the basis for Paul's confidence and the basis for our confidence. That God is with us. And not just we must not, but we need not be afraid. And we can, through God's strengthening, not be silent but to go on speaking. Again, when we share the gospel with others, we are motivated ultimately by love for God, but also by love for others. So what does that mean if we fail to love, to, if we fail to evangelize? The implication is that it's a failure to love God and a failure to love others. It's a failure to keep the great commandment. It's a failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's a failure to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
So what do we do? You know, just like I've had those conversations where I walked away thinking, wow, God, you did that. I could never have done that. I've had probably many more conversations when I walked away saying, I wish I'd said this, or I wish I hadn't said that. I'm sure you have as well. So what do you do when you fail to preach the gospel, which is, again, ultimately a failure to love God and a failure to love others? What do you do? You repent. You confess it to God. You ask forgiveness from God. And ask God to strengthen you, to help you next time you get another opportunity to to share the gospel. But again, this is grounded in the gospel. The gospel is the answer for those who fail to preach the gospel to others. Right? None of us measure up to, to the command that's required of us. The apostle Paul didn't measure up. But nonetheless, God was with him through the gospel. God strengthened him through the gospel. The promises that that Paul was telling others through the gospel were the same promises that comforted Paul's heart. And as you preach the gospel to yourself, what does it do? It, It fans the flames of love towards God and towards others in your heart. And the the more that you do that by God's grace, the, the more that you can't help but tell others about Jesus Christ. Again, do not take away from this sermon another another to-do list item. This is another get-to-do item. This this is a privilege that we have. I I don't want to to guilt people into trying to share the gospel. I want to to encourage and embolden you from the word of God, to, to be strengthened by God, to draw on that strength. Again, you have the same Holy Spirit that Paul has. And I trust that, that, that we all will, will look back on that day, on Judgment Day. We will, we will look back. We will meet people. We said, do you remember when you said that thing to me? Just a few words. God used that as part of the process of my salvation. Maybe somebody you've, you've only met briefly on the street and you... And you and you, you'll see them again in glory. And they will, they will come up to you and say, thank you. God used you to save me. And we will say the same thing to others. Those who have said, you could think of them now. People have just said a little snippet here, a little snippet there, have been an example of Christ-like love in your life. Even as Christians, those who have preached the gospel to you, Christian to Christian, in their words or their deeds, We thank God for these people. I thank God for you and for the ways that that you encourage me, that you preach the gospel to me in your words and your actions. And this is what we do in the local church. This is part of the mandate of the church. Again, this is not a a to-do. This is a get-to-do. Empowered by God's strength. And so we get to remind ourselves and we get to remind each other of the truths of Christ as we proclaim the truths of Christ to each other and to ourselves. And we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a proclamation of the gospel. This is a proclamation of all that Christ has accomplished. This is not a a, a time to to beat yourself over the back for all that you failed to do and even for the failures you've had this week for failures to, to share the gospel with others or to share the gospel well with others, this is, this is an opportunity to celebrate what Christ has done for you. Yes, examine your heart and, and repent and, and confess the things to God that, that, you, that you need to repent and confess to. But this is not about you. This is about Christ. And so as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're proclaiming to each other all that Christ has accomplished for us. We're proclaiming the gospel to each other. And this preaches the gospel better than I could ever preach the gospel. Better than you could ever preach the gospel. 
in any other way. This, this bread and this cup is a picture of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The body that hung on that tree that was crucified as Jesus Christ became the sin bearer. As he experienced the wrath of God in his body because of your sins, including your failure to share the gospel and every other, the myriad other ways that, that you and I have sinned even this morning. Of his blood that was shed, his blood that cleanses us from the inside out. As his death in our place, as his life in our place, as he went into the grave on that third day and as he rose again, or sorry, as he rose again on the third day victorious over sin and death and hell for you and for all of his bride. And we're proclaiming that. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming that to each other. We are praising God and praising the, the gospel of God to each other. May God help us. May he empower us as we do this in the, in the Lord's Supper, as we seek to do this in all of our lives for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray again together. Our Lord and our God, we are weak. We are far from perfect. We recognize our failures in loving you and loving each other in so many ways. We recognize that one of the chief ways that we do that is a failure to preach the gospel to others. Pray, I pray, Father, that you would grant us forgiveness for this. Help us to be so full of love for you and so full of love to those around us that we can't help but preach Christ. Lord, help us to be confident that you are with us in Christ and that you are in us through the Holy Spirit. And that you strengthen us to do what we could never do on our own. Just as you have strengthened us and granted us repentance and faith, we didn't have that on our own either, but you have granted them to us in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So help us to be confident that you will work in the hearts of your people as your people faithfully through your strength, preach the gospel. And we pray that your church would be used of you to build your church for the glory of your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.